Chapter thirty two of Esther Waters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bridget. Esther Waters by George Moore. Chapter thirty two. It had been arranged that William should don his betting toggery at the Spread Eagle Inn. It stood at the crossroads, only a little way from the station. A square house with a pillared porch. Even at this early hour the London pilgrimage was filing by. Horses were drinking in the trough, their drivers were drinking in the bar. Girls in light dresses shared glasses of beer with young men. But the greater number of vehicles passed without stopping, anxious to get on the course. They went round the turn in long procession. A policeman on a strong horse occupied the middle of the road. The wagonettes and coaches had red-coated guards, and the air was rent with the tooting of the long brass horns. Every kind of dingy trap went by, sometimes drawn by two, sometimes by only one horse. Shays half a century old jingled along. There were even donkey carts. Esther and Sarah were astonished at the number of coasters. But old John told them that that was nothing to what it was fifty years ago. The year that Andover won the block began seven or eight miles from Epson. They were often half an hour without moving. Such chaffing and laughing, the coster cracked his joke with the duke. But all that was done away with now. Gracious, said Esther, when William appeared in his betting toggery. I shouldn't have known you. He did seem very wonderful in his checks, green necktie, yellow flowers, and white hat with its gold inscription, Mr. William Latch, London. It's all right, he said. You never saw me before in these togs. Fine, ain't they? But we're very late. Mr. North has offered to run me up to the course, but he's only two places. Teddy and me must be getting along. But you needn't hurry. The races won't begin for hours yet. It's only about a mile. A nice walk. These gentlemen will look after you. You know where to find me, he said, turning to John and Walter. You'll look after my wife and Miss Tucker, won't you? And forthwith, he and Teddy jumped into a wagonette and drove away. Well, that's what I calls cheek, said Sarah, going off by himself in a wagonette and leaving us to foot it. He must look after his place on the ill, or else he'll do no betting, said Journeyman. We've plenty of time. Racing don't begin till after one. Recollections of what the road had once been had loosened John's tongue, and he continued his reminiscences of the great day when Sir Thomas Hayward had laid fifteen thousand to ten thousand three times over against the favorite. The third bet had been laid at this very spot, but the Duke would not accept the third bet, saying that the horse was then being backed on the course at evens. So Sir Thomas had only lost thirty thousand pounds on the race. Journeyman was deeply interested in the anecdote, but Sarah looked at the old man with the look that said, "Well, if I'm to pass the day with you two, I never want to go to the Derby again." Come on in front," she whispered to Esther, "and let them talk about their racing by themselves." The way led through a field ablaze with buttercups. It passed by a fish pond into which three drunkards were gazing. "Do you hear what they're saying about the fish?" said Sarah. Don't pay no attention to them," said Esther. "If you knew as much about drunkards as I do, you'd want no telling to give them a wide berth. Isn't the country lovely? Isn't the air soft and warm? Oh, I don't want no more country. I'm that glad to get back to town. I wouldn't take another situation out of London if I was offered twenty a year. But look," said Esther, "at the trees. I've hardly been in the country since I left Woodview, unless you call Dulwich the country. That's where Jackie was at nurse." The Cockney pilgrimage passed into a pleasant lane overhung with chestnut and laburnum trees. 
The spring had been late, and the white blossoms stood up like candles, the yellow dropped like tassels, and the streaming sunlight filled the leaves with tints of pale gold, and their light shadows patterned the red earth of the pathway. But very soon this pleasant pathway debouched on a thirsting roadway, where tired horses harnessed to heavy vehicles toiled up a long hill leading to the downs. The trees intercepted the view, and the blown dust whitened the foliage and the wayside grass, now in possession of hawker and vagrant. The crowd made way for the traps, and the young men in blue and gray trousers, and their girls in white dresses, turned and watched the four horses bring along the tall drag crowned with London fashion. There the unwieldy omnibus and the brake filled with fat girls in pink dresses and yellow hats, and there the spring cart drawn up under a hedge. The cottage gates were crowded with folk come to see London going to the Derby. Outhouses had been converted into refreshment bars, and from these came a smell of beer and oranges. Further on there was a lamentable harmonium, a blind man singing hymns to its accompaniment, and a one-legged man holding his hat for alms. And not far away there stood an earnest-eyed woman, offering tracts, warning folk of their danger, beseeching them to retrace their steps. At last the trees ceased, and they found themselves on the hilltop in a glare of sunlight, on a space of worn ground where donkeys were tethered. "'Is this the derby?' said Sarah. "'I hope you're not disappointed.' "'No, dear, but where's all the people? The drags, the carriages?' "'We'll see them presently,' said old John, and he volunteered some explanations. The white building was the grandstand. The winning post was a little further this way. "'Where do they start?' said Sarah. "'Over yonder, where you see that clump. They run through the firs right up to Tattenham Corner.' A vast crowd swarmed over the opposite hill, and beyond the crowd the woman saw a piece of open downland, dotted with bushes, and rising in gentle incline to a belt of trees which closed the horizon. "'Where them trees are, that's Tattenham Corner.' The words seemed to fill old John with enthusiasm, and he described how the horses came round this side of the trees. "'They comes right down that air ill, there's the dip, and they finishes opposite to where we is standing, yonder, by Barnard's ring.' "'What? Among all the people?' said Sarah. "'The police will get the people right back up the hill.' "'That's where we shall find William,' said Esther. "'I'm getting a bit peckish, ain't you, dear? He's got the luncheon basket. But, lor, what a lot of people! Look at that!' What had attracted Sarah's attention was a boy walking through the crowd on a pair of stilts fully eight feet high. He uttered short warning cries from time to time, held out his wide trousers, and caught pennies in his conical cap. Drags and carriages continued to arrive. The sweating horses were unyoked, and grooms and helpers rolled the vehicles into position along the rails. Lackeys drew forth cases of wine and provisions, and the flutter of tablecloths had begun to attract vagrants, itinerant musicians, fortune-tellers, begging children. All these plied their trades round the fashion of grey frock-coats and silk sunshades. Along the rails rough fellows lay asleep. The place looked like a vast dormitory. They lay with their hats over their faces, clay pipes sticking from under the brims, their brown-red hands upon the gray grass. Suddenly, old John pleaded an appointment. He was to meet a friend who would give him the very latest news respecting a certain horse, and Esther, Sarah, and Journeyman wandered along the course in search of William. Along the rails, strangely dressed men stood on stools, satchels and race-glasses slung over their shoulders, great bouquets in their buttonholes. Each stood between two poles on which was stretched a piece of white-colored linen, on which was inscribed their name in large gold letters. Sarah read some of these names out. Jack Hooper, Maribelone, All Bets Paid, 
Tom Wood's famous boxing rooms, Epson, James Webster, commission agent, London, and these betting men bawled the prices from the top of their high stools and shook their satchels, which were filled with money, to attract custom. What can I do for you today, sir? they shouted, when they caught the eye of any respectably dressed man. On the derby, on the derby, all bet the derby. To win or a place, to win or a place, to win or a place. Seven to one bar, two or three, seven to one bar, two or three. The old firm, the old firm, like so many challenging cocks, each trying to outshrill the other. Under the hillside, in a quiet hollow, had been pitched a large and commodious tent. Journeyman mentioned that it was the West London Gospel Tent. He thought the parson would have it pretty well all to himself, and they stopped before a van filled with barrels of Watford ales. A barrel had been taken from the van and placed on a small table. Glasses of beer were being served to a thirsty crowd, and all around were little canvas shelters, whence men shouted, "'Commodation! Commodation!' The sun had risen high, and what clouds remained floated away like filaments of white cotton. The grandstand, dotted like a ceiling with flies, stood out distinctly and harsh upon a burning plain of blue. The light beat fiercely upon the booths, the carriages, the vehicles, the rings, the various stands. The country around was lost in the haze and dazzle of the sunlight. But a square mile of downland fluttered with flags and canvas, and the great mob swelled and smoked and drank. "'shied sticks at Aunt Sally, and rode wooden horses. "'And through this crush of perspiring, shrieking humanity, "'journeymen Esther and Sarah sought vainly for William. "'The form of the ground was lost in the multitude, "'and they could only tell by the strain in their limbs "'whether they were walking up or downhill. "'Sarah declared herself to be done up, "'and it was with difficulty that she was persuaded "'to persevere a little longer. "'At last journeymen caught sight of the bookmaker's square shoulders.' "'Well, so here you are. What can I do for you, ladies? Ten to one bar, three or four. Will that suit you?' "'The luncheon basket will suit us a deal better,' said Sarah. At that moment a chap came up jingling two half-crowns in his hand. "'What price the favourite?' Two to one,' cried William. The two half-crowns were dropped into the satchel, and thus encouraged, William called out louder than ever, "'The old firm! The old firm! Don't forget the old firm!' There was a smile on his lips while he hallowed, a cheery, good-natured smile, which made him popular, and brought him many a customer. On the derby! On the derby! On the derby! All kinds and conditions of men came to make bets with him. Custom was brisk. He could not join the women, who were busy with the lunch-basket, but he and Teddy would be thankful for the biggest drink they could get them. Ginger beer with a drop of whiskey in it, that's about it, Teddy. Yes, Governor, that'll do for me. We're getting pretty full on dewberry. Might come down a point, I think. All right, Teddy, and if you'd cut us a couple each of strong sandwiches, you can manage a couple, Teddy. I think I can, Governor. There was a nice piece of beef in the basket, and Esther cut several large sandwiches, buttering the bread thickly, and adding plenty of mustard. When she brought them over, William bent down and whispered, My own duck of a wife, there's no one like her. Esther blushed and laughed with pleasure, and every trace of the resentment for the suffering he had occasioned her dropped out of her heart. For the first time he was really her husband, and for the first time she felt that sense of unity in life which is marriage, and knew henceforth he was the one thing that she had to live for. After luncheon, journeyman, who was making no way with Sarah, took his leave, pleading that he had some friends to meet in Barnard's ring. They were glad to be rid of him. Sarah had many a tale to tell, 
and while listening to the matrimonial engagements that had been broken off, Esther shifted her parasol from time to time to watch her tall, gaunt husband. He shouted the odds, willing to bet against every horse, distributed tickets to the various folk that crowded round him, each with his preference, his prejudice, his belief in omens, in tips, or in the talent and luck of a favorite jockey. Sarah continued her curse of chatter regarding the places she had served in. She felt inclined for a snooze, but was afraid it would not look well. While hesitating, she ceased speaking, and both women fell asleep under the shade of their parasols. It was the shallow, glassy sleep of the open air, through which they divined easily the great blur that was the race-course. They could hear William's voice, and they heard a bell ring, and shouts of, "'Here they come!' Then a lull came, and their perceptions grew a little denser, and when they awoke the sky was the same burning blue, and the multitude moved to and fro like puppets. Sarah was in no better temper after than before her sleep. "'It's all very well for you,' she said. "'You have your husband to look after.' I'll never come to the Derby again without a young man. I'm tired of sitting here. The grass is roasting. Come for a walk. They were two nice-looking English women of the lower classes, prettily dressed in light gowns, with cheap sunshades in their cotton-gloved hands. Sarah looked at every young man with regretful eyes. In such moods acquaintanceships are made, and she did not allow Esther to shake off Bill Evans, who, just as if he had never been turned out of the bar of the King's Head, came up with his familiar, "'Good morning, ma'am.' "'Lovely weather for the races.' Sarah's sidelong glances at the blue Melton jacket and the billycock hat defined her feelings with sufficient explicitness, and it was not probable that any warning would have been heeded. Soon they were engaged in animated conversation, and Esther was left to follow them if she liked. She walked by Sarah's side, quite ignored, until she was accosted by Fred Parsons. They were passing by the mission tent, and Fred was calling upon the folk to leave the ways of Satan for those of Christ.' Bill Evans was about to answer some brutal insult. But seeing that the Christian knew Esther, he checked himself in time. Esther stopped to speak to Fred, and Bill seized the opportunity to slip away with Sarah. "'I didn't expect to meet you here, Esther.' "'I'm here with my husband. He said a little pleasure.' "'This is not innocent pleasure, Esther. This is drunkenness and debauchery. I hope you'll never come again.' "'Unless you come with us,' he said, pointing to some girls dressed as bookmakers, with salvation and perdition, written on the satchels hung round their shoulders. They sought to persuade the passers-by to come into the tent. "'We shall be very glad to see you,' they said, and they distributed mock racing-cards, on which was inscribed news regarding certain imaginary racing, the paradise plate for all comers, the salvation stakes, an eternity of happiness added. Fred repeated his request. I hope the next time you come here it will be with us. You'll strive to collect some of Christ's lost sheep. And my husband making a book yonder? An awkward silence intervened, and then he said, Won't you come in? Service is going on. Esther followed him. In the tent there were some benches, and on a platform a grey-bearded man with an anxious face spoke of sinners and redemption. Suddenly a harmonium began to play a hymn, and standing side by side Esther and Fred sang together. Prayer was so inherent in her that she felt no sense of incongruity, and had she been questioned, she would have answered that it did not matter where we are, or what we are doing. We can always have God in our hearts. Fred followed her out. You have not forgotten your religion, I hope. No, I never could forget that. Then why do I find you in such company? You don't come here like us to find sinners. I haven't forgotten God, but I must do my duty to my husband. It would be like setting myself up against my husband's business." 
and you don't think I ought to do that. A wife that brings discord into the family is not a good wife. So I've often heard. You always thought more of your husband than of Christ, Esther. Each one must follow Christ as best he can. It would be wrong of me to set myself against my husband. So he married you, Fred answered bitterly. Yes, you thought he'd desert me a second time, but he's been the best of husbands. I place little reliance on those who are not with Christ. His love for you is not of the Spirit. Let us not speak of him. I loved you very deeply, Esther. I would have brought you to Christ, but perhaps you'll come to see us sometimes. I do not forget Christ. He's always with me, and I believe you did care for me. I was sorry to break it off. You know I was. It was not my fault. Esther, it was I who loved you. You mustn't talk like that. I'm a married woman. I meant no harm, Esther. I was only thinking of the past. You must forget all that. Good-bye. I'm glad to have seen you, and that we said a prayer together. Fred did not answer, and Esther moved away, wondering where she should find Sarah. End of chapter 32